Good, just barely afternoon, noon, church. It's good to be with you this morning. <clears throat> one of my favorite films is one that was made or released in the mid-90s, quite a while ago. It's a film called Good Will Hunting. It stars Matt Damon and the late Robin Williams. And if you haven't seen it, it's a story about a poor kid from South Boston who has uh, quite crass vocabulary and a habit for getting into fights. But he also has an improbable gift for the academic. He absorbs information, retains it, is able to uh, process it in ways that none of his peers uh, have ever seen before. Um, but as the film unfolds, it becomes clear that uh, the main character, Will Hunting, is held back in life in a number of ways because of his inability to connect with other people. He's held back in his career, in his education, in relationships with peers, in romantic interests, all because he really cannot engage. In fact, he's terrified of letting people in, so he uses this kind of male machismo to hold people at arm's length. His quick intellect, he goes on the offensive and attacks people. He uses all kinds of poorly timed, uh, timed jokes and ridiculousness to keep people from really getting to know him at every turn, the first uh, three quarters of the movie. He does all that he can to block people off. And there's a key scene that takes place um, about halfway through where he's meeting with this therapist that's played by Robin Williams, and they're out in the park. And this therapist kind of confides in him and, and self-discloses a little bit about his life and, and talks to him and says, this is what I see in you. I see someone who's scared, who thinks he knows a lot but doesn't know that much, and, and essentially makes this invitation. Let me see who you really are. Let's take a look. Let's explore what you really have going on. And the rest of the film is about Will Hunting's willingness or acceptance of that offer. And one of the things that I love most about the film is how it portrays that experience, the experience uh, of having an intimate connection with another human being, the feeling of having been noticed, feeling of being understood, the feeling of being given grace, the feeling of trusting and being trusted. And, and in the end, by the end of the film, the, the, this main character discovers not only that he wants that kind of human connection that he desperately, but that he desperately needs it. And of course, this probably isn't a shocking concept for most of us. The ma majority of us, we intuitively yearn for intimacy and, and not, you know, the American cultural way of talking about it, the, the casual intimacy or intimacy that takes place uh, between married people in the bedroom, but rather intimacy as deep human connection. And I think we not only desire it, we need it. You know, in Genesis, the, the Genesis story of, of creation, God has created everything, people, and uh, he, he's created animals and, and plants and so on, but he, he comes and he's only made one person so far and, and says, all of this is really, really good, but there's still one thing that's not 
good. It is not good for man, for people to be alone, which is kind of a surprising thing to hear God say. I mean, sometimes we, I've heard people say, um, you know, the only thing I really need in my life, I, I just need God. I don't need anything else. I don't need any stuff. I don't need people. I just need God. But here we are, pre-sin, Garden, Garden of Eden. God's just uh, it, it almost completed his creative work, and he says, no, people need more than just me. I mean, Adam was walking physically with God, and it wasn't enough. It's not good for people to be alone. We see the value of relational intimacy demonstrated throughout the scriptures in the lives of all kinds of biblical heroes. I think of Sarah and Abraham and Ruth and Naomi and David and Jonathan and Paul and Timothy and the list goes on and on. In Proverbs, we, we read that, that human connection is actually a key methodology for sanctification. Uh, Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Even the church, you know, we make up Jesus' hands and feet here on earth until he returns. But that's we collectively. I myself don't make up the church and you yourself. It's only us together. And, um, and, and if you argue, as I've heard Bill Hybels argue, that the local church is the hope of the world, then there's key uh, important things resting upon our ability to engage well with one another. And I think that for some of us, we are sort of like will hunting and uh, we kind of are tempted to, to run from intimacy, to avoid vulnerability, to put on pretense, to guard ourselves with our stuff or our titles. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, I think some of us are entirely too exposed. We, we live in a culture that I think borders in some ways on exhibitionism, and I've been involved in it, and many of us, uh, many of you have been involved in it as well. We, we tweet in status update and uh, video and film, and we put it out there for consumption of all of our friends or people that we don't know. We write tell-all autobiographies about our deepest secrets, shameful events, most private moments in our lives. We go on TV shows. Well, this trend is kind of on its way out maybe, but we go on TV shows and we uh, have our family, everything in our lives broadcast to the world. And, and for those who are in the public eye, who would rather not be in the public eye so much, we don't even give them a pass. We, we hire people to follow them around and take pictures of them and write stories of them so that even if they want to be private, they cannot. Um, you know, I heard a story recently about um, uh, the first woman or the first person to create a live 24-hour-a-day, 7-day-a-week feed of her apartment and to stream it online. This is way back in the mid-90s when technology only allowed for the camera to take one picture every 15 minutes, but it did so in her apartment for seven years. Eventually it moved to video and multiple cameras and multiple servers. At its height, Jennycam, as it was called, had over a million visitors a day. People loved watching this woman, Jennifer Ringley. She recently gave um, an interview on a podcast I 
enjoy, and which is kind of rare. She hasn't come out in public very much. She's changed her name from Jennifer Ringley to Jennifer Johnson to be a little bit more anonymous. And she did this interview and she talked about why she created it. She just was trying to do a sort of a social experiment. And she said at first she was completely herself in front of the camera. She acted like it wasn't there and just did whatever she would normally do in her apartment. But little by little, as they added cameras and it went to video, she said that things started to change. And she, she found herself acting more and more. Uh, she found herself self-censoring and choosing what to do or not to do based on what she perceived her audience wanted. Things started to change. She said that that by the time she shut it down, seven years later, it was like 2003 or four, she said the camera had completely become a pretense in her life and it was no longer serving its intended purpose. So even though it documented everything that happened in her life, she says it wasn't the truth. Just because people saw everything in her private life didn't mean they knew her. Exposure isn't the same thing as intimacy. In Matthew's gospel, he, he describes the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Matthew chapter 26, and it's just before Jesus is arrested, if you know the story. And Matthew, the, the author, portrays, I think, a very interesting dynamic that's taking place in Jesus' life. So I'm going to read it starting with verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he begged, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch for me for even one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you do not fall in temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So for Jesus, everyone he knew, all the people he had known and interacted with and had relationships with him, everybody didn't have the same level of access into his life, into his plans, into his heart. He gauged intimacy by the level of trust that he had with different people. And I think even in this short description in Matthew, we can discern a few uh, distinct levels of trust in Jesus' life. Um, entering the garden, it said, were, were his disciples, the 12. Well, it was really 12 minus 1 at that moment. But the 12 are the ones that go to this garden for this intimate, uh, pri pretty private, personal moment, completely heartfelt, the 12 go along with him. And that notably implies a whole bunch of other people that weren't invited. I mean, Jesus had all kinds of other disciples, many other followers, men and women who were committed to him, who were trying to model their lives after him. Um, but they weren't invited. 
they weren't there in the garden. We find in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 disciples on a missionary um, exercise. In Acts chapter 1, we read about how there were 120 followers left after the resurrection. There, There were many people who followed Jesus, but they weren't included in that smaller group who were welcome at Gethsemane. But even, even beyond that, there were the masses, you know, the people that Jesus interacted with once or twice or who met him one time or who got to experience healing because of him. And then maybe even further out, there were the, the haters, the people that criticized Jesus that were not on his team at all, who had it out for him in one way or another. But, but welcomed into Gethsemane were, were just those 12, and it, and it goes even further than that. The, the text says that, that he had the 12 that came with him, or the 11, and then there were three more that were welcomed beyond that. So they stayed somewhere over, you know, kind of maybe out towards the entrance of this garden area, and then three got to come a little bit closer, James, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus gave them this special assignment to, to pray for him, to intercess on his behalf. But, but then it goes further and says that Jesus went even yet farther in and left them where he and God alone interacted. Because, because at his core, Jesus trusted only the Father implicitly. So at the risk of being cliche, being a little too simplistic, I have a, a graphic for or an illustration for what Jesus' system might have looked like. You know, at his core was the Father. You know, the closer you get to the middle, the more trust he had, and therefore the more intimacy he had. And there was the three, trusted them a great deal, was quite close to them. And then the twelve, maybe a little less yet. And then there's sort of all of the disciples. They, They had really good access to him, but they still didn't have as much as others. And didn't know him quite as well, and then there was the masses, everybody else. By contrast, I think we could see uh, Will Hunting's diagram. It might look something like this, a little tiny, like there is pretty much no one in that most trusted place. It might even be a dot instead of a small circle. I'm not even sure if he trusted himself, but he had almost no intimacy in his life at all. Everybody was outside. And even further, by contrast, if we were to to give a graphic for Jennifer Ringley's model, it might look something like this, just a giant circle and everyone was welcomed inside. Everyone can be here. But it's interesting to note that even though everyone was trusted, everyone had access to everything about her life, she too had very little intimacy with anyone. I mean, that was the problem. She was known and yet not known. And so I think we can kind of see that that there's a relationship between carefully tending and cultivating and guarding trust and the depth of intimacy we can enjoy in our lives with just a few. I think building trust and becoming a trustworthy person, it's a delicate and tender thing. It's beautiful and fragile. I think we can relate to it kind of like oxygen in the atmosphere. Too little trust, and we have no life. And too much 
trust, too much oxygen, and life can't exist either. So the question uh, as we close here this morning is, how do we build our ability to, to trust others? How do we grow in our ability to be trustworthy people? So I want to share a few things, three barriers and, and three um, pathways to, to building trust in our lives. First, uh, barriers. Uh, one is, is gossip. One is gossip. Um, I, I think this applies to, to both receiving and creating gossip. I mean, for, for all of us, we've probably interacted with someone or uh, had a relationship with someone who talked a lot about other people in our presence, maybe positively, maybe negatively. And I think for, for most of us, we just intuitively know that's not a person that we can really entrust with deep, serious, important things from our life because who knows what they'll say when I'm not there, right? But I think, even, I think the similar dynamic is there even if we just receive negativity uh, about someone. You know, if, I, if I've heard this thing about, you know, th this, this person in their absence, what, what happens when we're together again? What happens when, if I know this thing about them, but they don't know it, about, they don't know that I know, right? What happens when they find out that I know and I've been holding that behind them that destroys and erodes trust between us? Um, so I think w one way of dealing with that is, is, is to just refuse gossip. Hey, that's my friend. That's my friend. We're, we're good friends, and I don't think I want to hear about that. Thanks. I mean, it's uncomfortable and a little bit difficult, but I, but I think it actually grows an atmosphere of trust. It makes me a more trustworthy person, gossip. So the, a second one um, is having an agenda. Um, Paige and I just recently um, got a minivan. Some of you know this about us. Uh, we have two kids, two boys now, and the car we had was becoming inadequate, and so Paige wanted a van, and so I had a Mustang three years ago, and now I don't. We have a van <laughs> instead. And um, one of the things I, I dislike the most about being a human being is buying cars. I just really don't like it at all because there's this interaction with this other human being who has completely one-sided agenda for our interaction. They do not care about me. They don't care about anything. They would do absolutely anything to ensure that I buy a vehicle for them. And it's just, ugh, it's just so icky. I just, I can't handle it. And I know that I don't trust them and they know I don't trust them. And still they use all the psychological tricks. Ugh, it's the worst thing ever. Next time I need to buy a car, maybe one of you can help me and do all that for me and just bring it home. Um, <laughs> um, but agendas, if, if there's an agenda, if I have some plan for you, if I have something that I want you to do, especially if I know what that is and you don't know what it is, th then manipulation is the only possible thing that can happen, trying to control the situation. And, and if I'm controlling, if I'm manipulating, there, there isn't trust real trust possible. There's not intimacy possible. Um, Don Miller recently released a book about building uh, relationships, and 
And he writes some about how control affects us. There's this uh, quote where he says, uh, relationships matter. They matter as much as exercise and nutrition. And not all relationships help us reach our goals. God doesn't give us crying, pooping children because he wants to advance our careers. Controlling people are the loneliest people in the world. So the first would be gossip, a barrier that keeps us from being a trustworthy person. And the second would be carrying around an agenda. Uh, third is fear. Fear. For, for some of us, we were not raised in a family culture where um, authenticity was a value. We maybe didn't even learn how to do it. Like trusting other people with what's really going on inside our lives. It just not something we really absorbed how to do. And so it's a scary thought. I have to expose what and talk about what. It's frightening. It's hard. Um, you know, when we trust someone, when we give ourselves to another person, uh, we're, we're in their power. I mean, anything could happen. It's part of the reason why loss is so painful when we're really, really connected with another person. We've invested in them. We've given ourselves to them. And to lose them um, is, is way, way far more painful than it would have been had we not. It's scary to give ourselves to another person. I remember um, a couple days before my wedding, it's almost been 10 years ago, um, and I, I became just completely terrified of this very dynamic because I knew what the commitment meant to me and I was excited about making it and I knew my intentions and I knew my willingness to follow through with it. And I knew, um, I knew Paige really well and I was committed to her, but I could not control whether or not she was going to follow through with that. And it was terrifying I had, I had no control over the half of this whole equation. And it just struck me a couple of days. I called someone from here from our church community, one of my good friends, and, and talked a long time about this dynamic and, and going through with trusting her. It's, it's, it's scary to trust. So three barriers and now three paths to, to building trust, to becoming a trustworthy person. Um, I think that there's amazing magic in um, self-disclosing at the right times and the right places to the right people, that very carefully deciding to open up to someone and share things that are really going on deeply. It, it's an amazing thing for those of you who have experienced it to uh, say something and see it open up a pocket right here where all of a sudden it's okay to be real, and it's created by someone getting vulnerable. Some of you have seen uh, Brene Brown's TED Talk talking all about the, the beauty and power of being vulnerable with our fellow human beings. It's, it's a wonderful gift to communicate to someone, you are not alone. And we do that by taking the risk of uh, saying how it really is for us. So, so the first one, self-disclosure. A, a second one is, is listening well and remembering. I think that um, for, for me, it's much easier for me to trust someone who, who remembered a conversation that we had 
a month ago or two months ago or three years ago because I know uh, at least I have more faith that they kind of understand me a little bit. They kind of get me. They kind of care about me. And I have to admit that for me, man, listening takes a great deal of energy. Um, it's hard. I can remember all kinds of facts and information and technical things, all kinds of stuff, but it, I have to put forth real strong effort for me to um, fully engage in a conversation and remember what was said to me uh, later. And so I think it's just, a lot of it is just putting forth effort, making it um, intentional. And a third one is uh, giving grace. Giving grace. I think nothing pours uh, cold water on intimacy, uh, on trust, like judgment or condemnation. Um, I think criticism has a place um, in the context of a trusting relationship, but we probably all could tell stories about how a perfect stranger came up to us and told us this about this or that about how we looked or what we said or what we did or what we didn't do or how we parked or I don't know maybe not about how we parked but like I think we've all had experiences where where someone has come and judged us and criticized us about something who didn't know us at all and it, it doesn't build or create trust between us at all in any way it erodes us it makes me look like you it makes me feel like you have it out for me I think on the other hand, like giving grace, blessing someone with that is a way of helping them not only to see my good intention, but also seeing a picture of God. There's this um, quote from an author I appreciate, Brian McLaren, in a book that he wrote about um, spiritual practices. And he, he said, experiencing mercy and grace from you, someone both present and visible in front of me, helps me to believe and trust in the mercy and grace of God who is present but not visible to me. Uh, so may you be blessed with the courage to engage deeply with people uh, you love and care about. May you grow in your capacity to trust and to be a trustworthy person and may the world be a better place because of it.